Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Drew Friedman is the man in the hot seat today. Just put out this incredible book, what, Lo- Mavericks and Lunatics, Icons of the Underground Comics. We did an episode on it. Uh, super excited to have him. Jimmy, give a little uh, bibliography. We'll jump right into things. Any similarities to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Warts and All, the uh, comics collections by Drew Friedman. His work has also appeared in National Lampoon, Raw, Mad, Heavy Metal, Weirdo, New York Times, Rolling Stones. And over the last decade or so, he's been doing portrait collections, including old Jewish comedians, heroes of the comics, all the presidents, and his latest icons of underground comics, which Ed just held up. Drew Friedman, man, welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you here. And I'm looking forward to this. So as a kid, straight out of uh, high school, you went to SVA, had a Mount Rushmore of comics history as your teacher. You had you had Eisner, had Kurtzman, you had Spiegelman as teachers. And I'm curious about maybe a little anecdote about each of those guys. Well, yeah, it was a pretty incredible time, which I took for granted then, you know, because I was just a kid, 18, when I signed on to SVA. And, you know, I only went to SVA because I saw Harvey Kurtzman's name in the catalog and I couldn't believe it. I did a double take. I said, wait a minute. And he was teaching um, cartoons, like how to draw cartoons for Playboy or The New Yorker. And he wasn't even acknowledging his comics work or even his mad stuff um, in the catalog. It was just like, you know, so I, I went, to, I signed on for SVA for that reason. Then I realized Will Eisner was there. Art Spiegelman, who I knew less about at the time, I knew his work for, from Underground Comics, but also he had Ed Sorrell, the the uh, caricaturist, and Stan Mack, who did Stan Mack's Funnies, and um, uh, Arnold Roth, all these amazing guys who lived in New York, so it was easy for them to get to get to uh, get to the college, which was on Twenty Third Street. So you know, I have different feelings about each I, I, about each teacher. You know, uh, Harvey Kurtzman was just like a guru. You know, I have to admit he wasn't the greatest teacher and, and fellow students agree with that. But it was just being around him, being around his aura, which was enough, you know, just the great Harvey Kurtzman. And it was just like, you know, you, you, you're in his presence for three hours once a week. And that was enough for me, you know. And he was just he was very low key. He didn't have a lot to say. But what he said was like right on the money, usually. And he zeroed in on my work and he just picked up on like my at least my uh, enthusiasm to draw and work hard and you know i was like a wise guy back then i guess i still am but i was like uh i wouldn't you know i was like uh you know one of the reasons i i don't want to teach is because i might have a student like me you know that that's my reasoning but we got along great and he wrote it forward to the to my first book um persons living and dead which was co-written by my my brother josh which i wanted to mention also warts and all so and also Harvey just seemed like he was of that era, 1979, 1980. He just seemed like he was part of that time where Eisner seemed like he was more like in 1940. He was like a throwback. He used to come to, to class with a three piece suit and he just seemed like a gentleman from the past and a raconteur. And his favorite subject was Will Eisner. So, you know, it was all about Eisner and he wanted his students to draw like Eisner, you know, and 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 compose comics like Eisner. That was interesting. And then Art Spiegelman, you know, was teaching, um, he was doing this lecture series at the time, Language of the Comics. And so that's what his class was, Language of the Comics, just teaching about comics history from the past up into the present, at least up until Undergrounds. And he was about to launch Raw Magazine. 
So he picked up on my work as well and, and liked it and used me and Mark Newgarden and Kaz in the first issue of Raw. So, you know, we, we became friendly and, and, and t stayed in touch over the years. <laughs> he brought up Kaz's name in conjunction with SVA. And there's that famous Mark Byer story. Yes. How's it go, Jimmy? See, see if this uh, rings a bell, Drew. There's a story yeah. in, in uh, Comic Art Magazine about Mark Byer coming to SVA to, you know, do a guest lecture. And um, Kaz raising his hand and asking him if he drew that way on purpose, <laughs> which, yeah. according to the magazine, ended the lecture early. Do you remember that? Were you by any chance in that class? Yeah, I was in that class. I remember it. I remember Byer being there. He was painfully shy. And he was, it was Art Spiegelman's class. And he asked, uh, uh, Art asked Mark Byer to say a few things about his work. And Mark Byer just looked down at his feet and he just kept murmuring, it's all shit. It's all shit. That's all he had to say about his work. <laughs> <laughs> it's so heartbreaking to hear that. I, I feel like that's a, uh, a certain stereotype with some cartoonists. Um, for a couple we, generations. Yeah, as we grew up, we would hear those kind of self-effacing cartoonist stories. And Well, he was just the wrong guy to ask to come talk to your class. You know, that was like clear. But it was interesting anyway. He was just being, he was being honest, although he was incorrect. His, wasn't, his work wasn't shit. I, I loved it. But, you know, that's just how he felt that day at that moment anyway. <laughs> my, uh, I went to the Kubert School and my lettering teacher was, was your letterer, Phil Felix, who did the hand lettering uh, for the type on this cover and has been That's your right. long long time letterer for yeah forever. phil was a phil was going to sva then too i first met phil in harvey kurtzman's class because he was lettering little annie fanny for harvey and we just we became friendly and then i just started using him to letter my comics and i'm still using him to this day to you know because i think he was the perfect guy to do the lettering which i wanted which was to just um kind of capture that underground feel you know and i wanted to i wanted it to look hand-drawn also not not done on the computer or you know, like that. When so he, he's the he was the perfect guy. Yeah, when he was doing the uh, little Annie Fanny lettering and things, uh, he was he said he was also would technically his job description was Harvey's assistant, and he mentioned that that Crumb may or may not have showed up to, to class, may, maybe given a little a little talk uh, to you guys or something. But he had vivid memories of being with Crumb Kurtzman, and I think he might have said you were there also. But you guys were like found like Walter Keene paintings just in in the trash while you guys were out on the town. Uh, do you recall any of that stuff? Not really. My encounter with Crum, he came to Harvey's class in like 1979. He just walked in. He had with him a guy who published R. Crum's Carload of Comics, that book that came out. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but he that guy did all the talking. Crum hardly said a thing. He just kind of stood there smiling and Harvey Kurtzman was trying to get him to talk a little bit. And Crumb was just murmuring a few things here and there. He was just in New York to hang out. He had records with him. Um, I didn't even, I didn't even approach him because I couldn't believe to me. It was like, you know, the Beatles walking in or something, you know, I didn't even approach him. Uh, I didn't want to bother him. I didn't want to seem like a fan, annoying fanboy or anything, but I just watched him. You know, he was there for about a half an hour and I just couldn't believe it. And I was, I said to the guy, kid sitting next to me, I said, oh shit, Robert Crumb. And he goes, you know, big deal. He's no Jim Starenko. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> that, so, that, uh... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I finally like, you know, had got my nerve up to contact Crumb when he started Weirdo a couple of years later. And I sent him a, I sent him some samples of my work and a note. And I just really thought I was pro either not going to hear back from him 
or if I heard back from him, he wasn't going to like my work because, you know, for whatever reason, maybe he would think it was too realistic or he, he wouldn't like the stipple. But he wrote me a beautiful postcard and said, like, he'd been following what I was doing and then, you know, invited me to do work for Weirdo. You mentioned uh, a classmate bringing up Jim Steranko, and I wanted to know, like, what is the atmosphere of comics? What are your prospects like? Uh, what are your expectations in that late 70s, early 80s, whenever you're going to class? What was the comic scene like at that time? I had really low expectations, but the thing is, I really had a lot of energy. So I was like doing my work um, with my brother, Josh, like writing scripts at the time, really great scripts like the Andy Griffith script where the uh, you know black guy comes to Mayberry and and things like that early on. So I wasn't really thinking about like where I would market them. I was more drawing them for myself, my friends, my brother, just to share. And then but Harvey Kurtzman and Art Spiegelman picked up on them. And ran them, you know, Harvey ran them in his school magazine cartoons. And that's where Art saw it and ran that Andy Griffith piece in the first issue of Raw. So things just happen like, you know, one thing leads to another, you know. Um, so, you know, just like built up from there, you know, where I just thought, I, I guess I could make a career out of this. Although, you know, I was hardly making any money. You know, the most money was like $25 from Raw. And then Robert Crumb offered $50 for Weirdo. You know, and then, you know, it's like a little bit more from heavy metal and Nash Lampoon and it just built up from there. But I wasn't really following the comics market at that time. I had no prospects of of doing work for for Marvel or DC um, or even heavy metal. And, you know, um, and the undergrounds were kind of over at that point, too, in the late 70s. I love the transparency about the, about the page rate at, at Raw and uh, Weirdo, because one of the sort of tried and true things in the history of illustration and comics is that uh the same people who do stuff in like highlights magazine make better money at pornography uh doing, <laughs> and it's like almost the same kind of audience in a way like this is the same kind of humor and you did stuff for al goldstein man screw magazine covers and stuff uh that must have paid better right it paid a little better, you know, you still could, it wasn't really a living, you know, if you did a cover that paid a little better, but I did work for Screw because my brother Josh was an editor there. So I had carte blanche to do what I wanted. I wasn't really interested in doing sex cartoons or, or what you'd expect. So, so I drew Shemp Howard for the cover of Screw and Tor Johnson and um, Dwight Fry and Ernest Borgnine, you know, I throw a little bit of like innuendo, sexual innuendo in the background just to keep people happy. But I, I kind of got away with that because my brother was there and, you know, it was just like, you know, what's going on here? You know, I just like used to imagine, um, you know, derelict waking up in Times Square the morning that the screw with Shemp on, uh, Howard came out, looking up at the newsstand and just thinking that they were in a dream world or in hell or something. <laughs> Shouts to Josh, by the way, because Times Square, that book that he compiled all his uh, his essays and editorialism. Fantastic. Yeah, that was great. He, he he was a columnist for Screw for for a few years, about maybe a decade. And then he compiled all that stuff into that book that came out in the mid 80s. That was terrific. Must read. Yeah, that was a book that I came across uh, whenever I was doing a book set in the 70s. And it was like, you know, that that's something I always like to ask people who went to SVA or, or Pratt in that window of time because it seems like such a mythic piece of i don't know new york city history what are your memories of like uh manhattan at that time period <laughs> well you know my brother josh and i we kind of had separate worlds we both lived in manhattan but my manhattan was 
going to old movie theaters, going to comic book stores, going to old cinema stores, movie stores. Like there was a store called Cinema Bilio on 13th Street. So I was a, I was a collector and, you know, I used to buy a lot of stuff like, you know, swag. You see the stuff behind me. I've had most of this stuff my entire life for 50, you know, up to 60 years. Um, he had he was more focused on Times Square where, you know, which I wasn't. Although, you know, I was like always interested in like reading what he was writing about it. But that was his world. I had a separate world. But, you know, our worlds collided. And that's why we were able to work together. In the early 80s, like when you're going to, to, to school, uh, are you becoming aware of like stuff like Love and Rockets and, and that new kind of comic? Yeah, a little later, maybe, you know, first it was it was what was happening in Raw. And and the the energy in Raw was great because you know it was it was a positive competition going on. So I'd see work by you know Charles Burns or Mark Newgardner, Kaz and Spiegelman certainly, and you know uh, a bunch, uh, Ben Catcher. And that was like okay, you know, it's not trying to outdo them, but just trying to do your best work little by little. And that's the way I felt with Weirdo too when that happened a year later with Crumb. Um, just you know that positive competition that goes on, and that's that that sort of followed me when I did work for spy and later with heavy metal and then especially with the new york observer when i was doing covers and other cover artists were philip burke and robert grossman two of my heroes and victor uhas also a hero so you know i i love that that which you know that competitive that positive com competition which doesn't really exist anymore as far as i'm concerned you know because somebody asked me why am, am i not doing that many comics anymore it's because there's just not the venues anymore that used to exist back then in the 80s and 90s. There were just so many places to place your work, see it in print. And it's just it's just not the same now. So, you know, I just don't do as many. I don't know where to play. I wouldn't know where to place them. Yeah, your stuff is so labor intensive also. So it would come out in these one, two, three, three page bursts. I feel like that that one crumb story might have been your biggest singular comic ever like eight or nine pages yeah that was eight pages that was the longest piece i did and that took four months to do it was it was exhausting right um but you know it was like something i wanted to tell like what he meant to me uh, throughout my entire life starting at age nine discovering zap comics you know innocently in the back of a bookstore and it just blew my mind yeah and so just good. from there captured yeah. in the editorial uh, at, at the at the at the beginning of this book which i thought was just just fantastic i talk about that too discover you know in the book discovering you know zap the first issue of zap and just like you know just being baffled because i thought mad magazine was like the craziest most subversive thing going on and you know then i saw that and i said holy shit like this it was just a new world that opened up at age nine i shouldn't have, i shouldn't have been looking at it you know it was illegal <laughs> and that was part of that was part of the fun and you know <laughs> the excitement I feel like that is an experience that a lot of people have whenever, you know, whenever I read this editorial, um, it feels like you're summing up probably a lot of people's reaction, regardless of their age, whenever they encountered, especially Zap, you know, if that was like their first exposure to underground comics, you're just not prepared for that. You know, there's nothing in, in comic book history that really leads you to that spot. It feels like that's, yeah. a, that's a radical yeah. shift. Yeah, it was like, uh, you know, I wasn't expecting it. Also, the fact that it was 25 cents, which seemed ridiculous to me, 25 cents for a comic book, which was supposed to cost 10 cents. And it was black and white, which made no sense. It was just strange. The color, the cover was, was color in the back cover, but the interiors were black and white. It was weird. And even the fact that he didn't use a ruler to rule out his panels was just so strange and interesting and and exciting to me you know it's like it just seemed so homemade which it was it was one guy putting out this thing 
you know it wasn't a team of artists which you know which i loved it wasn't a, it wasn't an assembly line. it wasn't a committee you know like like the mainstream obviously it was one guy and and, and that sort of rang true with most of the undergrounds you even capture some of that in the, in the back of the uh the new underground comics book when you do smaller portraits of the publishers and stuff and then you realize like yeah there's one guy on the creative but there's also like one guy on the printing, like literally one guy, a dude that might have the printing press in his yeah, garage yeah. or yeah. something. Yeah, Ripoff Press was a big fact for undergrounds. It was a big factory, you know, but there were four guys, basically four, five, five, six guys, maybe total um, in the whole company, you know, with Gilbert Shelton running it. You know, it wasn't like Marvel or DC. And I knew Marvel well growing up because my dad was working at magazine management, which is the company that owned Marvel. So when I visit my dad at his office, and you know he was an editor up until 1966 up there, men's adventure magazines. So I'd visit, my brothers and I would visit him often, and Stan Lee was in the next office. So I'd make a beeline for the comic book department and, and you know got to know Stan as well as he could know him, but he was a fascinating character. He, he didn't have the wig on his head yet, but he was still like very gregarious. And he took a liking to me because my name was Drew and and I liked to draw and I liked and I was just so into the Marvel, you know, the Marvels at that point too. So I get a big stack of Marvels. <laughs> yeah, can can you explain the culture of that because like we in retrospect we read about how you Stan Lee's pounding the pavement on like the college circuit and we we're looking at old articles that talked about how these Marvel comics, these new Marvel comics, they're they're a hit on on college campuses and stuff. Like do you think that that's just his their own salesmanship or were they legitimately cool i, I hear that they were really tough to get uh back yeah when DC i think i think part of it part of it was stan you know his like this persona he invented you know with with the toupee with the big big head of hair all of a sudden in 1966 67 and his whole uh you know his he dressed differently he dressed like you know like a like a playboy and he grew the mustache and he wore the sunglasses. So it was just like his this persona he put out. The you know he was Mr. Marvel Comics. But I think that stuff really did catch on in co college campuses. I don't think that was fake. I think the college kids really picked up on it. You know, for a period in, the, in 66, 65, 66, 67, the superheroes with problems thing. You know, it really did make a a, a dent in that world. Um, I think that was legit. That is such a rich period. Whenever. Uh you know, we were we were kind of prepping for this, and I knew that your father worked there for a little bit. When I found out the time period, like, is there a better time if you could be getting Marvel comics than you know the the first half of the '60s? Did you like looking back? Does it feel like that's what put you on the path to being a cartoonist? Were you copying drawings and, and things out of those old Marvel comics? I think that must have it must have helped and encouraged me because my dad literally would bring back a stack of comic books. Starting in 1962, when I was like three or four years old, he'd bring back a stack at the end of the week. Not that he was into them, but, he, you know, he had kids. He had three sons and he knew we liked, you know, we liked comic books and we liked that kind of thing. So he'd just bring us back a stack. And, you know, it's like Millie the Models or Amazing Adventures or Spider-Man or the first issues of Fantastic Four, X-Men, all that stuff. Doctor Strange. And I, you know, it's like... <laughs> I was like, I didn't read the stuff then, you know, I was too small, but I just was fascinated by the artwork and the color and everything and the colors. And I saved that stuff for years. So it must have had some kind of influence on me, you know, just the whole world of comic books, which, you know, was one of the reasons I did that. The two two um, uh, collections, uh, Heroes of the Comics, like paying tribute to those early creators of comic books. 
wouldn't Martin Goodman? He also published some weird porno porno magazines at the time too. Like, is that is that what what Bruce would bring well, home for that, himself? It gets a little tricky because you know Martin Goodman was the publisher of, of Marvel. He ran magazine management, so he was the publisher. And Martin Goodman's son, Chip Goodman, later became um, the um, editor of Swank Magazine, which was like like a poor man's penthouse, or you know, like Cavalier, Cavalier Magazine. There were a bunch of those, but it was Swank. So, you know, so they, yeah, they did delve into pornography. That was kind of after, a little after, you know, like um, the 70s, the early 70s, you know, when um, when uh, Martin Goodman, I think, uh, retired in the early 70s. And um, so, yeah, again, like, um, you know, my, my interest when I used to visit my dad was, was, was Stan Lee. And, you know, because he was such a, you know, a character. And he took a liking to me, like I said, and he said, someday I would work for Marvel, which never happened. Although I did work up there, at, like through my high school, a work study thing for like a week when I was 14. <laughs> through Stan, he made that happen. That's yeah. fun. Did you ever deviate from being like the kid in class that drew? Was your path always going to be something in the uh, visual arts? That was basically, and I was like, you know, if you, they were on Facebook, people like said, yeah, I remember you in third grade and you were always drawing monsters all over, all over your, your, your books and your, your, um, and your desk and stuff. And you were obsessed with that. And it's true. That's what I was. I was either, I was either drawing or I was attempting to be class clown, you know, uh, and I don't have admiration for class clowns because it's just too easy. You know, you have a built in <laughs> audience. You, you're not earning your audience. So, you know, I'm not proud of that. But I was always obsessed, obsessed, totally obsessed with drawing, you know, constantly and and monster faces and Basil Wolverton inspired faces, things like that. And also faces of um, aging people like somebody like starting at age 20, going up to age 70, showing the progression of every 10 years. For some reason, I did hundreds of those drawings, uh, which I still have. <laughs> Gary Groth, Eric Reynolds. Get on that, man. <laughs> we'll promote the hell out of it. That's a bizarre one. I wonder if that comes from like monster special effects in movies or something where you would see sort of the stop motion of, you know, transitioning to the werewolf. Drew's a trendsetter, dude, because when Crystal Meth comes out and you see the mugshot photo progressions of uh, people with the sucked up cheekbones <laughs> and all that. I'd like to see that. I haven't seen that, but I don't know why I did that, but I just took a fascination with like how faces aged. I'm even interested in how I'm aging, you know, I'm like getting up there. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen, you know, um, but I hope I'm not covered with liver spots, you know. But if I am, I guess I had it coming to me. Oh, that's full karma. Yeah, yeah, that's, full, yeah, that's right. dangerous. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm prepared. <laughs> when you were at uh, working on Raw, a couple questions. Like, you were there sort of before Charles Burns shows up. Like, I wonder if I wonder, you know, what those first interactions are. But also, uh, Paul Karasik, I was doing workshops in Denmark, and he was out there also, and he told this story about. Um, there's the issue seven, I think, with the torn cover and everybody stitching it back together. He was talking about like it was almost like a anthropological study at the time, because like when he stepped back from what was happening, it was all the guys are tearing the shit out of these magazine covers. And it was Francois and a bunch of ladies who were like on the mend, putting it all back together. Were you a yeah, part yeah, of I that was, kind of thing? I was there for that session. Yeah, I was there for that. I was also there for that. Also, the when Mark Byer did his, his cards, his trading cards. Um, based on um, uh, uh, Mars Attacks, it was Mark Byer cards. 
we put them in little baggies, I think, and had to staple them in the issue. And yeah, I took part in all that stuff. It was, you know, it was just fun. It was like, you know, Art and Francois had food and, and wine for us. And so it was like a party kind of atmosphere, you know, but we sat there for hours and did that. <laughs> I'm going to dust off my uh, my poly bag with the trading cards, run it through the database, man, and see if anybody <laughs> comes up as a hit. <laughs> the, the, the ripping the cover thing was tricky because... You know, we we sort of, uh, you know, he he demonstrated how to, you know, what he wanted. And it shouldn't be too much ripped off. It shouldn't look like it's cut. So it was like, a, you know, you had to do a few of them before you got it right. I remember that was tricky. <laughs> <laughs> like homework assignments. <laughs> yeah. The proper way to deface your comics. <laughs> right. It's just devaluing it. I don't know if that helped. I don't know what the value of that particular issue is. Now, it's possible it's like, you know, it di it didn't do anything to devalue it whatsoever. I know they printed a Gary Panther special, a Jimbo special, with like paper that was going to disintegrate within, you know, that was like 35 years ago. So I don't know if that they I still have it. I should look in it because I have I have that Jimbo special, raw special. <laughs> I'd be curious to see if that paper disintegrated. I'm going to do that when we're done. It's still good. I got one right here on the camera you check it out too <laughs> yeah. Yeah. drew did you have a sense of like what raw was doing at the time because you know that's something i come to i don't know 15 years after it's published and it feels like it's this revolution but when you're in the moment were you sensing like these are exciting cartoonists and new voices in a in a different way to do comics did, was that were you conscious of that at the time I think I was. Yeah, I realized, you know, it was a, to me, it was a beautiful looking publication and had a great feel. It was different than anything else that was going on. Um, and and then, you know, the, the press was the media was picking up on it, um, especially, you know, when art started putting Mouse into, in you know, the second issue, I think Mouse debuted. So the media was really picking up on it. And um, but it was it was a low key kind of vibe. You know, the page rate was low distribution there was you know they didn't print that many it wasn't until later when penguin picked up on it and released it as a paperback that you know got mass distribution and and then it, you know there were three i think paperback issues and crumb did a cover for the first one charles burns did one gary panther um but it was just a fun atmosphere it was like um like i said it was like this competitive thing going on where you know we'd all get together most of these artists were in new york so or if people were flying in from um europe like yo swart Art, Art Spiegelman and Francois would have a, a get together at their apartment in Soho. So everybody kept kept in touch. It was exciting. And then when new artists would, would appear like Charles Burns, uh, that was exciting, too. Just seeing like new faces pop up in there, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed that whole experience. But I also enjoyed doing work for Weirdo. I was like, I think Kaz and I were the first were the only artists who went back and forth between Weirdo and Raw, you know, because one was like, you know, the, um, you know, was like a piece of art and the other was like you know a piece of shit basically you know like <laughs> and crumb was proud of that you know <laughs> yeah man prison drawings big daddy roth imagery would be printed in there man that that mag freaking rocked it was um, interesting because when i was doing stuff for you know i was doing stuff for raw and then i would do things for weirdo and one time i showed art like something i did for for raw for weirdo um, elevator men, a page of like elevator men faces. And Art said, you know, I really want to draw. I want I want to print this in raw. I said, well, I already promised it to crumb. And so I can't I can't backtrack at this point. And but then I was thinking like, shit, if it's in raw, it's going to be large. It's going to be on quality paper. And if it's in weirdo, it's going to, you know, kind of look crummy on, you know, that cheap newsprint. It was actually uh, the paper was decent, but I just stuck to my guns. I said, look, I promised it to him and I have to I have to, you know, 
stick with that. <laughs> with with that in mind, uh, you know, the idea that it could have been printed larger. Uh, I've seen some of your originals from, from the stipple period, th thanks to Phil Felix. And uh, it struck me as the art is almost like one for one to size with the the print of the the actual magazines to some extent uh there would be a difference with that with that second volume of raw was tiny so i imagine it was some reduction there but would you would you basically work to size or yeah you're better? absolutely right yeah uh i wanted to see it as it was going to appear so the stuff i did for where it was that size stuff i did for heavy metal was the exact size of the magazine etc and the stuff i did for raw was larger it was like the pieces were larger the andy griffith piece and um piece i did for the second issue where a black guy steals my coat and uh, whatever else i did yeah i worked larger so you know for that reason alone as i was working on it i wanted to see how exactly it was gonna like look when it you know in the magazine you have know? you carried that over like are the portraits that are in here about the same size as, as print i think they're actually larger you know in this case i'm working larger now you know because i work with gla I, I i use gla i wear glasses when i draw my eyes are fine, but, you know, I just prefer, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking of, of gallery shows and things like that. And galleries like larger work, you know, I've been told. And um, and so, so you know, yeah, the stuff is large. I'm just working larger in general on most of the thing. I don't work as small as I used to. I work, you know, and, you know, it, little by little, the stuff gets larger and larger for whatever reason. Yeah. Whenever you were... Uh starting out or, or maybe whenever you were at SVA, were you conscious of developing your own style? Like, like you've mentioned some, you know, most of the artists that you've mentioned so far here, I think of Charles Burns, they were artists that showed up with like a pretty unique style. And I think of you that way, you know, I can't, I don't know anybody else that draws or, or illustrates anything like your style. So is, was that a conscious thing that you tried to develop? It, it was conscious to, to work stipple at the you know in the late 70s and I was not I've, I've mentioned this before I was not a fan of Stipple necessarily you know I, I like the work of George Surratt I like Virgil Finley's uh work for pulp magazines and but I was not a fan of it but I just realized I, I made this decision that um somebody gave me a gift of rapidograph pens and I started fiddling with them in the late 70s I had never I, I and I I fell in love with the you know the the one the uh 0 0.5 point which is the smallest and i just tried to figure out like what is the best result i can get out of this thing and i just started dotting you know i didn't even know it was referred to as stipple or anything like pointillism i i wasn't really aware of it although like i said i like some of those artists um but it just seemed right you know i was able to do detail in faces you know which i wasn't able to cap i wasn't able to do with uh um well ballpoint pen or a crow pill crow quill pen like it just started fit. It was fiddling. And then I realized like, well, nobody's really doing this kind of stipple work with comics and, you know, with cartoon art. So I just built up, I, I started from there. Yeah. And then, you know, jump a decade, I got bored with it. I got bored with it. And also I was getting a lot of um, assignments like magazine assignments and I'd have to move faster to get them completed because sometimes you'd have a day and sitting there stippling, you know, would just like, t it was so time consuming that I phased it out in the early nineties, I think. And, and then, um, Eva, you know, started just working with watercolor and the brush. So yeah, I was, um, that was just, you know, for practical reasons, like I said, um, to meet deadlines, but over the years, I've uh, kind of returned to stipple at least using the brush to like get that effect. 
but you know, I would never go back to using a pen, <coughs> a pen and ink to do that. So you know, with the brush, I can you know. So it's it, it, yeah, the style I think is evolving, and you know, maybe it, maybe it stops here. Maybe this is what I'm going to do for now on. So one of the interesting, things uh, I think um, one critic, Robert Robert, um, um, Clo uh, I forget his name. A critic said I'm a restless artist, which I always agreed with because I I do get bored. You know, I didn't want. I don't want to get trapped into one style, and uh, I like to evolve. Yeah, evolving is good. The the subject matter of of um, the old comics, be it Tor Johnson or William Bendix, the style lent itself well to kind of like a snowy, fuzzy black and white television, and just felt it, it felt so right. Uh, but with the material that you're doing now, certainly the stuff in the Underground Comics book, uh, is it all uh, when you put it together? each portrait is it an ink wash like is it black and white because i'm looking at the uh the rory hayes piece that's like right here yeah that that's color that's a that's a color uh print i, I feel like I, i've seen this image in color but it's black and white here well the rory that rory hayes in the oval is a brand new piece painted in black and white okay. it's i use that i use that photo of rory standing there you know um, for my, for, I painted that in color. Yeah. This one, I just silhouetted his face and redid it. Um, so that was done in, in, you know, just in black and white. I thought it was important to draw all these, um, portraits in black and white because underground comics for the most part were black and white, you know? So I wanted, I did the earlier books, the heroes of the comics in full color. Cause you know, back then it was all in color for a dime. Uh, but the undergrounds were just, you know, one of the reasons they were fascinating to me was they were black and white, you know, for the most part. Let's talk about a color one, uh, Bijou number eight, because whenever you have the opportunity, uh, there's great bio biographical information along with every portrait. Uh, and anybody who contributed to Bijou eight specifically, you always call that out. It's an important comic uh, for, for us on the channel. Is probably one of the first comics we looked at on our show and tells. Uh, was it an important comic to you? It, it, it shows up a lot specifically in these biographies. Yeah. Um, I guess it was it was that was the last issue of Bijou, I think, and it had a Harvey Kurtzman cover, right, which was pretty, you know, impressive, and you know, and then it was you know, cartoonists parodying parody doing parodies of of their fellow underground cartoonists, and, you know, it's just it all worked. Yeah, it was one of the few color ones, but yeah, I love that too. I love that too. I especially love uh, Jay Lynch did the uh, the Freak Brothers, right? Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. You know, I was like. It's just the fact that Kurtzman, that's why I included Kurtzman in this book, you know, and a few people have asked me why Harvey Kurtzman, you know, he wasn't an underground cartoonist. He wasn't, but, you know, he was so supportive of that world. He did some work for them. He wrote, you know, forwards for Robert Crumb and uh, Crumb wrote a forward for his Kurtzman comics that he put out. Um, he was just like, he just, he took a liking and he was supportive of, of all those guys. Um and but he also saw the writing on the wall on the wall and realized it, you know it wasn't going to last and he was right um, for whatever reason. But you know I just thought it was important to have him there. But yeah, I love that Bijou eight. He he fits in perfectly to me because there's that that great Victor Moscoso Super Eight footage that shows up in like Comic yep. Confidential, shows up in the Crumb documentary. I think pieces of it show up in the Spain documentary uh, where they're all jamming. Um, they each have their own panel, and I think it's science fiction funnies. Uh, it's a, yep. it's a jam strip, and you see Kurtzman there. You know he's he's there drawing these comics with them. So I mean, you know he fits yeah. in. I mentioned that in a little in the short Kurtzman biography I wrote. I mentioned that Moscoso film. 
Um, Harvey was born in 1924. So someone said, like, 1924, how could he be an underground cartoonist? He was already in his approaching 50. When I said, well, look, there was actually one underground cartoonist who was born before him, George Hack Vogren, whose work I didn't know until I started this book. But he did a, a comic book called The Captain, like 1970, that the print mint published. It's interesting work. You know, it's kind of, you know, low key, not a lot of dialogue. But he's officially the oldest underground cartoonist. <laughs> and he's in the book. It's interesting you mentioned their ages. That's something that uh, I noticed looking through the book is like there's a real energy in that, I guess, underground comics, underground cartoonists were mostly young when they were making this work and you capture that. Did you enjoy that? You know, I think of like old Jewish comedians and I've seen in interviews where you talk about, you know, liver spots and moles and goiters and veins and all these different, you know, kind of the imperfections of aging. Um, how, how did it feel drawing a bunch of young artists? Yeah, with the Jewish comedians, like I, I at the time, I didn't want to just do a, a tribute book to comedians, Jewish comedians. I wanted to draw them old because I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by people as they age especially these comedians. I've known a few of them and they just, they hold on to, you know, they, the fact that they, 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 they're still funny, even if they're not very funny or if they are funny, you know, it's maybe kind of pathetic to see Jerry Lewis still attempting to make falls or screaming his head off. Like, you know, um, <clears throat> some of them just like continue, like Don Rickles was as funny as he ever was, even when he was an old man and Joan Rivers, a few of them like that, but a lot of them kind of lose it, but they don't want to lose it. So I wanted to capture that. You know, I have Mil I had Milton Berle on the cover and he looked really angry looking at the reader pointing like smoking. Uh, and that's the way he was. He was just like, you know, like I'm still funny, God damn it. And like, you know, I want people to know it um, with the underground cartoonist. I wanted to capture that era, that 10 year era from 67 to 77 from Zap, from Zap to Arcade, from Z to A. Um, I wanted to draw them as they were then, you know, not like later on. Uh, it wouldn't have made sense because a lot of those people, you know, that don't exist. I mean, they died young, like Vaughn Baudet and a few of them. But I just heard from Trina Robbins yesterday. She said, you know, I was dreading seeing the portrait you're going to do of me because I thought you're going to make me look all old and wrinkly. I said, but you made me, you know, you drew me young and I, and I love it. And she wanted to buy the art, but I sold the art. But I was really happy to hear that because, um, you know, I was actually kind of she was one of the people I was like not dreading but I was wondering like how she going to feel about this because I got Robert Crumb on the cover and we know how she feels about Robert Crumb and and, and the like but she was like totally thrilled which made me really happy <laughs> yeah over over time like uh all that all that stuff becomes less and less important uh in a, in a lot of ways uh when I was in San Diego no it, it might have been Ape uh in in uh San Fran but she was like hugging Robert Williams and 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 having uh, nice yeah. chats and even it even impressed Eric Reynolds like wow I didn't think that that that, that would happen uh, yeah that's, sometimes that can happen it's sometimes it's amazing or like you said it's just like years go by and people forget about their grudges or you know whatnot it's like you know a lot of those underground the undergrounders are gone uh, since I finished this book four of four of them have died which I feel bad about um, you know Justin Green Diane Newman. Tom Veach and um, and uh, Simon Deitch have died since I finished the book. So we were able to um, correct. I mean, we were able to have Justin Green's uh, death date in the book, you know. But, um, yeah, I've noticed that, too. A lot of these people like, wait a minute, I thought these two are enemies. And there they are together. Even there's a, uh, there was a reunion of Gary Groth and Dennis Kitchen, you know, a couple of years ago. 
you know, after after all they went through uh, a couple of years back. <laughs> there are these bits in, in the book, uh, in some of these portraits, where the, the Von Baudet one is, is an example, a couple others, where we get to see some of their hand in... Uh, in the artwork you capture their line and things uh beautifully and like that von bode piece and there's one or two others uh later on where the artwork is even skewed and you capture it that way is that some old like artograph projector on an angle technique or something <laughs> i think you know we were able to do my wife and i kathy were able to do that in the computer uh take take one of those pieces you know scan it and then like manipulate it like that. We did that a couple of times with the Von Bode, I think with, um, oh, with, uh, now I forget his name, but one of the kitchen guys. Oh, um, the guy who did Smile, that comic. Yeah. Um, we were able to manipulate uh, one of his pages. Yeah, that um, Macmillan guy. I think as too. well. But Macmillan um, was, um, you know, he was one of one of these, one of the guys who um, I didn't know what he looked. I mean, I knew what he looked like as he drew himself once for arcade, little portrait of himself. Um, but he sent me some photo. He sent me some photos of himself. I wrote him, uh, and <clears throat> he's one of the only guys I wrote because um, I didn't want to bother anybody like with my project. Like, hey, I'm I'm working on this book, and could you help? You know, I, I just I, I don't like to. I didn't approach any of the Jewish comedians or any of the comic artists, the mainstream artists. I didn't want to do it in this case, although Dennis Kitchen was really helpful, getting me reference on all the Wisconsin artists. A couple other pe people sent me photos. And Michael McMillan sent me some great photos of himself because I had no idea what he even looked like. There were no photos that existed on him. And a few other people, too. There was nothing on Buckwheat Florida Jr. I had no idea. I didn't even know what his real name was. Um, but my friend John Wendler, who's a whiz at just coming up with obscure information, and photo photo reference uh, tracked him down. I mean, tracked down you know images of him, old old photos of him from the seventies, and that's what I was able to use you know <laughs> for him for buckwheat. And we got his real name too, Conrad Bell. <laughs> Once you gather up these photos, are you doing um, a lot of sketches? Are you working closely from the photos? How do how do you can we talk a little about your process? Well, I, I what i'll do is i'll you know i'll sketch out like a really rough of what i want to what i want to draw like what uh, what i imagine the piece is going to look like and then i'll do a um you know I, i'll just i have to have good reference you know especially with the faces um but it just it builds up organically like some some of these pe people i i originally intended to draw as silhouettes but then i thought well it would be interesting to show you know their work environment or put them outside you know just add on more to it. I didn't want to cheat the reader or cheat myself. So, you know, even if I'm not in the mood, like uh, I'll just start adding on and adding on. I love drawing backgrounds. You see that you see my my studio behind me. Most of these artists had the similar kind of thing going on. You can see it in Bill Grip in the Bill Griffith piece. He's got this amazing collection of books and toys and marionettes and then and and zippy bottles, soda bottles of uh, brands called Zippy that people would send him. I wanted to capture all that. It was to me, it's like almost as interesting to draw the background details as, as it is to draw the faces. But yeah, I'll just like build it up organically, sketch it out, light sketch, tighter sketch, use, you know, the photo reference to, you know, for the faces and for the bodies and for the background and just get it right. And then just paint, you know, it takes about three or four days to paint. Some of them like Trina Robbins took a week. Some of them were really highly detailed. 
but you know, I was just really committed to this book, and I wasn't I wasn't compromising on any of them. I wanted to, you know, I had, you know, this was my my pandemic book, so I had two two full years to just take my time with this, and you know, I originally drew a hundred, and I said, let me. There was one other guy, Jim Evans, who I discovered later on, who did some work for Undergrounds in the late sixties, early seventies. One comic called um, "The Dying Dolphin" about the the environment. And I wanted to include him, even though he gave up on Underground soon after and went into like album covers and prints. Um, so I rounded it out at 101, and uh, yeah, like that. So you know, but I didn't, I didn't compromise, like I said, on any of them. I really wanted to put a lot of time into each one of them. You know, I even really even lesser people who like whose work I didn't like, it didn't matter. You know, I wanted to like give everybody their full due. One of the uh, features I love in this book is the layout with the one page of the biography, which I believe you wrote those biographies. Um, I, I look at this through many lenses, and one of them is history, comics history. It's yeah. a little bit of a different way to approach comics history. Are you writing those biographies? Like, is that part of the research early in, you know, developing your idea for the portrait? Does that inform kind of how you're building those portraits? I guess some of the some of the biographies reflect what's happening in the portrait, a couple of them, but usually it's like, I'll start with the portrait and, you know, I wrote the biographies at the end, you know, when I finished all the artwork. Um, um, I took about a month to write the biographies um, and Ed Eric Reynolds and I worked, you know, edited for about a month after that. And um, just to, and, and then we ran everything by Patrick Rosencrantz, who, you know, is an expert on that world. And he found a couple of, of mistakes, which we corrected. And, you know, sure enough, there are a couple of minor mistakes in the book. You know, which will which will be corrected if there's a you know a second edition or a paper paperback. Um, but yeah, it's like uh, the artwork. You know, is you know began with the artwork and then you know the biographies came later. A lot of these guys, like uh, I mentioned um, to uh, Noah Van Skiever, that I didn't even need any any help with the Robert Crumb biography. I just knew everything. You know, I just like wrote it. Like I think I wrote it out like you know in ten minutes. You know, did a little some editing, but. And then some of them I had no idea about any any about their lives. And there were a couple of people in this book I had never even heard of until I started working on the book and I realized, well, this person should be in because they made they made an important contribution or their work was really good and you know, more people should know about it. You're a heck of a salesman for this Barney Steele who did an Armageddon comic that <laughs> is something uh, something likely to offend just about everyone, aptly described as the overtly anti-state, sexually explicit, politically incorrect, libertarian underground fantasy comic. Do you have that comic? And can you, can you uh, expand on that? So very. Curious. I don't have that comic. I don't have that comic. But I've read. You know, I've read. I've read the stories he has in there. I think there were two issues. I think. Um, yeah, two issues total. That's all he did in the world of underground comics. He, he later did some self-published comics. He's still around. Uh, he seemed like a character. You know, he has, I think his, his daughter or his son or both of them run a uh, Facebook page for him. And he's still at it. He still draws. Uh, I didn't know anything about him. There was one one photo I found of him with um, Gary Arlington at the, at the at the store in San Francisco, the comic book store. Um, where he's just standing there, and I, I use that. I think I use that as reference, and then used one of his images for the background. And I like how Mark Marin picked up on that image for his forward. He said that's like he saw um, a couple fucking in space, and it was uh, drawn by this guy. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's like I, I was aware of it, and I knew how controversial he was. You know, like I think some people have written articles about you know, like um, 
about uh, how uh, how offensive his work is like that. But I think he was a good artist and, you know, and certainly deserved to be in this book. He made he made an impact. <laughs> Neg- of- maybe it was negative, but, you know, I, I, you know, his art is really interesting, I think. It does feel like there's a different energy around that portrait, uh, a little bit more of a sense, I don't know, of, of menace or something, something a little more. It could be. It's possibly he's just a completely nice, sweet guy. Sure. I have no idea. You know, it's like uh, I haven't heard from him. You know, uh, maybe I maybe I, I don't want to, but you know, I I just felt he should be included, and I felt that way about a few people, like you know, and people have like uh, a couple of people said like, why would you include this person or that person? I gave myself a rule at first, like um, uh, I want I want people to be who is who at least a, appeared in ten issues, say ten issues, but in some cases I had to break that rule, like like. George Hack Vogren, who I mentioned, he, all he did was work for one comic book, The Captain, um, and and Buckley Florida Jr. just did, you know, his one comic book, Suds, but it had a huge influence on Crumb in 1970. Like Crumb absolutely loved it, and I think it, his work kind of you know changed right after he absorbed Suds, and um, but Buck, Buckwheat is another guy who got right out of the comics, but Crumb Crumb named a character after Buckwheat Florida Jr. in the in that um, uh comic about uh birth control um which i forget the title of now he had buckwheat florida jr and strawberry fields were the characters <laughs> what a nom de plume buckwheat <laughs> florida jr <laughs> Fact, facts of life honeys that uh, that was it came out like 72. <laughs> did you have a particular uh resource for you know if you're looking up kind of like what where these people appeared um, you know, like the underground comics price guide or, or something like that. Was there, were there any standout references? Yeah. Jay Kennedy's book was really helpful. The underground comics price guide. Jay was a friend of mine and, you know, I still mourn him. He was, it was a big loss, but, um, his book listed every single artist who contributed to underground comics. There's one, a listing and it's over 3000. It's just a little over 3000. So I went through that entire list and cross-referenced and 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 uh, we did you know wheedled that list down to 101 of the most essential but i kept returning to that list and then just discovering somebody new and i said holy shit this person should be in there like like um say uh well barney Steele, who did armageddon just did two undergrounds but harry driggs was another guy um who did work he did this clear this incredibly pornographic Cleopatra book in the in the late sixties, which was released without his permission, and it was so pornographic it had it had kitty porn in it. You know, it was just like you know, it's unpleasant to look through. Um, but I felt he should be in it, and he's another guy. I had no, there was nothing nothing available on him. Uh, finally, one photo turned up of him of him just standing around in a park in San Francisco, and I was like, whoa, he looks like a like a Manson like a Manson family member. But it was a great photo, and that's what I used. I mean, I changed the background somewhat, but that's what I used for him. But he was another guy who's a really talented artist, and he became more of an art director later on. He actually did the logo for the Green Party in the early '80s, so he was pretty fairly prolific. But he, you know, he had a place in this book. There's a true history of of comics at large, like within these pages, uh, thanks to having the contribution of like um, Harvey Kurtzman in there. But then you have the uh, kind of ground level dudes who are part of fandom, like uh, Grass Green and uh, Mike Vosberg, who who had just like mimeograph type fanzine comics, touched the undergrounds for a little bit, went mainstream. And uh, my personal favorite man, uh, Roran Rick Veach, uh, Two Fisted Zombies was his his joint and, uh, you know, went 
to DC Comics to, to have have that kind of a, a contribution. But just picking these extra names and extra portraits to put in there covers the gamut of like the entire 20th century, basically, man. So yeah, there were a couple of guys. Those three guys you mentioned. Also, Jeff Jones, who was yeah. certainly a mainstream guy, but did some, you know, did a few things for undergrounds. I thought it was important to keep to, to include them. Um, uh, Vosberg, his uh, some of his work appears in that, you know, 1973 uh, Estrin book on the history of underground comics. Um, so, you know, he was right there at that period. And, you know, his stuff was, you know, stood out for like being more like Marvel-esque, I suppose. But, you know, sure enough, like he he was in a bunch of issues and 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 you know, like Jeff Jones is and Jeffrey uh, Cat Jeffrey Catherine Jones. I got to be careful here. Um, yeah, he was like you know he did a few things. He did spasm for last gasp and whatnot. And you know, it's just like a lot of these people went back and forth. Undergrounds were so popular that a lot of people like you know like you know stuck their toe in at least briefly. You know. <laughs> yeah, just just uh, starting this channel, like I've made di discoveries for myself, like collaborate collaborations between uh, Bernie Wrightson and and Von Baudet. Like, who knew? You know, like it's people in the comment section and stuff that that hip us to that. Um, then Bernie Wrightson, he didn't do anything for Undergrounds, but as you know, he was married to Michelle Brand, who was an underground cartoonist, married to Roger Brand. So you know, a lot of people, a lot of these people, they tie in. You know, I mean, they didn't really uh, get involved with it. I mean, there was no money to be made, you know, but it was uh, it was just unto itself. You know, you could just like do what you wanted to do. So you just blew my mind because then that's that's Michelle Wrightson who, who colored a lot of that Captain Stern and right. See, it happens every day. It's I think yeah. it's listed in her biography. I think the uh, the the Bernie Wrightson, you know, eventually being married. Yeah, the, that she was married. I don't really go much into what she did. I think I, I mentioned there's uh, I mentioned that she was a colorist for Warren Publications. You know in the 70s but that's, yeah that's the other thing that i like a lot too is uh the biographies they look good in their biographies you know like uh, some of these people some straight up maniacs uh s s some of them you know like you Ma mavericks Ed. Mavericks. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like you could really go there but you so show such a sensitivity to them with the biographical part in the same way as you do uh their their portraits like when we did the episode on on the book specifically uh just we made note that it's not you're not you know crumb has that that sort of bump in his nose it's not i've never seen you over exaggerate it to some like pelican kind of proportion or anything like that so yeah. so the biographies show that same kind of sensitivity uh as um as the the, the portraits do yeah these aren't um yeah these aren't caricatures, you know, I didn't feel it was necessary to caricature anybody. You know, they're straight on portraits in my style. Um, maybe some slight exaggeration here or there, but it, a lot of it depended on, you know, the reference I, I had. And with the crumb, you know, like Art Spiegel was surprised that I didn't draw like a more heroic crumb. Like, you know, crumb was like, you know, the, the, he started underground comics, basically the most famous artist uh, in underground, possibly the most famous artist alive right now. Uh, most celebrated at least and most reviled um but he was like surprised like this is just such a low-key portrait of him just sitting alone you know in a cafe like looking down at the sketchbook nothing in the sketchbook which i wanted to you know i wanted that i, I didn't want to you know i actually thought about like okay what can i put in there what's he working on you know and i said let me just like get let me just uh it's right before you know he 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 puts uh um pen to paper you know so just imagine what he might be drawing 
Um, but yeah, like the as far as the portraits themselves, you know, I didn't want to come off as a wise guy. Dan Close sent me a note. He loved the book, but he said, like, you really took the high road with this. You could have drawn Ned Sontag with one of his 600 pound girlfriends, but you chose not to. I, and like that, like, you know, I didn't want to be a wise guy. I mean, I admire just about everybody in this book. Interestingly, I went into this book and I had hesitations about doing it because I didn't admire all the artists. There were some that stood out and I'm not going to mention their names that I never liked their work. Even when I was a kid, I still don't necessarily like it. But I actually learned to appreciate a lot of it since working on this book and absorbing um, a lot of the stuff I could see like, well, this this person really had, you know, a great pen line or was really onto something here or stuff is really interesting or they were a good storyteller stuff I missed out on early on. And it, 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 working on this book and, and being obsessed with the comics because part of my, you know, um, daily routine was to just like sift through my old collection once again. Um, I just have all that stuff still and and, and just um, absorb it again once again but I I just took a different uh, a, a different path with it where just I really wanted to try to appreciate some of these people and I did Drew I wonder if you could compare your comics to these portraits do you see parallels you know I think differences maybe are obvious but do you see some parallels in your bodies of work between the comics and the portraits um yeah i hadn't thought about that um i'm not sure I'd, i uh i suppose i suppose there's some parallels um i identify with a lot of these artists like you know the, the, they were just passionate about their work they weren't in it for the money i wasn't in it for the money when i was starting out especially for the first 10 years in fact i have i stopped working on um comics with with my brother josh and and, and for the most part my own stuff because it was just so time consuming and, you know, I was just, you know, <clears throat> looking to um, build up uh, a nest egg uh, at that point because I was getting married and we were thinking about moving to the country to a house. Um, so, yeah, I identify with a lot of them. And uh, so, you know, I just really felt like compassion for a lot of these people, like uh, especially some of the ones who didn't have great lives um, who like but, you know, they were just dedicated to their work. But, you know, either it didn't work out or they just moved on to something else. I feel like there's a lot of storytelling in these images, you know, from choices of backgrounds, even choices of composition and, you know, some some of the low angles on some of these characters. I'm a fan of Rory Hayes work. And, you know, anybody that knows his story, it's it's that's one of those lives that probably isn't the happiest life. Uh, but but your portrait of him, it, it feels very energetic, very positive, And I, I appreciated seeing that part. So I think there is a lot of story in those portraits. Well, with Rory, yeah. Uh... Um, I've drawn him a couple of times before, and I'm a fan of his work, certainly. And, <clears throat> I, I, you know, um, I had this, it was a full body a photo of him, like sitting on a park bench like that by himself, you know, making a goofy face. He's holding up a bottle in the photograph. So I just, I moved in, I closed in on that. And I just wanted to have, you know, the same, basically the same, what, what's going on. He's kind of joyous. You know, maybe he's like he's high or something, but he's kind of joyous. And but I wanted to, you know, have people around him like and there's one lady like looking at him like, you know, disdainfully. And I wanted to capture that. So he's in his own world. And then the real world is like is circled around him going about their business, not not realizing this is, you know, this guy's a, you know, 
an underground comics who a comic artist whose work has gotten some attention it's like nobody could give a shit of course but you know it's like two separate worlds uh, in in one drawing hopefully <laughs> i also see some parallels in the uh in the juxtaposition of text you know those biographies next to each portrait i i know that's not comics in any traditional way but it does have that little bit of word and image you know back and forth play yeah yeah, it was, I, I, it was important to do a mix, not like, you know, uh, I did a book of, pre, of portraits of presidents and, you know, uh, before this, a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, it's the each, each one is exactly the same. It's just a formal portrait, shoulders up, no background. I mean, look, just uh, a painted background. And, you know, I tried to be as respectful as possible with those guys as well and not exact overly over. But it was just, it, it became a, a format, you know, each one was exactly the same. I thought, you know, that was important for that book. This book, I wanted to just um, ex reach out and I mean, uh, wanted to um, uh, <clears throat> just uh, not hold back, uh, put everything down. You know, it was like, like I said, I had two years to work on it, maybe more. And I just wanted to go full tilt on everybody, you know, not hold back. Even one guy, Leslie Kabarga, I really like thought about including a background. I just have a white background. He's the only silhouette in the book. Um, and I felt a little weird and guilty, like, shit, I'm not giving him a background. It's not because he doesn't deserve it. But, you know, I wanted the drawing to center on his T-shirt, which was Betty Boop, you know, and anything else in the background would have distracted from that. So that, that, that's the one example, you know, it, it was important to me to have nothing but him exposing his t-shirt he has an or you know like he's like orgasmic almost over betty boop <laughs> <laughs> drew is it mandala effect or did we see a cigarette in spain's mouth at you one certainly point? did you're not crazy i i drew him i drew did that drawing he's he's smoking a cigarette sure enough one guy and then a second guy said look um you know i really like that portrait but spain did not smoke so i said okay you know and I asked my friend who I mentioned before, John Wendler, I said, look, could you come up with some photographs of Spain smoking? Because I seem to remember when I was up at Art Spiegelman's studio in the early in early 80s when they were working on Raw, Spain was helping out. And I seem to remember he was smoking. You know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering correctly. Sure enough, John Wendler came up with a photo of Spain smoking, but Spain was a teenager, you know. So it's quite possible that he gave up cigarette smoking after that, soon after that. Um, so we took the cigarette out. Um, Was that I didn't take it out of the drawing. Uh, we, the Fantagraphics took it out. They airbrushed it out. So, yeah. <laughs> You're not crazy then. I was just wondering if there was all kinds of patches and stuff like that. <laughs> you good to go? Drew, let's let's uh, close things out by talking about this documentary that's been uh, in production for quite a while. Shouts to Kevin who was putting it together. He was even during uh, COVID. He was even, you know, trying to figure out how to get to Pittsburgh to uh, to film the the, the kayfabe boys talking about old Uncle Drew. What's the status of that? What's going on with that documentary? I want to see it. Well, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin Doherty, he's in Wilkes-Barre, so you know I don't know how far that is from Wilkes from Pittsburgh. A little closer than I am, but he's been working on it for about six years now. He like two years, he couldn't do any interviews. So that slowed him down during COVID. Um, but he is working on it day and night, not night, but most of the day. Um, and what I've seen, I really, really like. I think he's doing a great job. I'm not really involved in the film aside from being the subject. 
it, the, the working title is Vermeer of the Borscht Belt. Um, but, you know, I mentioned he's working on it for six years. There's two Harvey Kurtzman documentaries going on right now. One has been going on for about 10 years. One, one just started last year. There's two Mad Magazine documentaries. One has also been going on for 10 years. There's a, there's a documentary about Will Elder um, being made by his son-in-law. That's been going on for about 12 years. I think he filmed me for that about 12 years ago. These things take time. So the, Terry Zweigoff took uh, 10 years to film Crumb. So Kevin is, is only into year six, but it looks great. And he has a, a GoFundMe going on now because, um, you know, it's expensive. He's He has to travel around. He's still got some interviews to do. I hope he I hope he does you guys, um, but he still has some interviews to do. I'd love it if he did, could do Crumb, but that's kind of tricky right now. Um, so he's he's getting there. He's almost wrapping it up. What I've seen looks great. So that's it. So, uh, you know, he's I'm, I'm actually he's going to be filming me tomorrow just to tie up some loose ends. Um, so he's getting close to the punch to the finish line on this. But um, he still needs some help with funds because it's just an expensive process. All right, man. So I want to put it out to the audience then. Uh, we're going to have a link in the description uh, below this video uh, to where you could contribute a couple of dollars. If, 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 if Drew Drew's work moves you in the same way it does me and Jimmy. Uh, contribute a little bit. Uh, I would love to see uh, a documentary uh, about. That's Drew. great, Ed. And uh, Ed, Ke Kevin has been here a bunch of times with his cameras. He's filmed me here in the studio. You see my my studio behind me. He's filmed the entire studio, including my Jewseum, which is my collection of Jewish comedy uh, uh, items. You know, I have thousands and thousands of records, books, comic books, toys, buttons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's been filming that as well. So uh, it's, uh, it, it should be fun. So before we get out of here, uh, Drew, can you point people in any direction, uh, things that you want to promote? Obviously, get your hands on the Underground Comics book that Fantagraphics put out. You can't take it for granted that these books will be on the shelves forever, man. So pull the trigger ASAP. Uh, where can I find you, social media, any of those kind of outlets? Let the people yeah, know. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm on Facebook and I, I have a print site, you know, just drewfreeben.net. You can buy my latest prints. I, we released a Buster Keaton recently. We have a Kurt Vonnegut coming out for his 100th birthday. This is a piece of artwork I just, I finished a little while ago, but this gives you an idea of um, size, I guess. This is Weird Al. This is coming out as a book. Uh, they, uh, they, this um, company called Z, Z2. They're putting out a book of Weird Al's lyrics illustrated by comics artists. So they got Peter Bag to illustrate the, uh, a Weird Al song and uh, a bunch of great people. And I did the cover. There's a few editions coming out, but this is the main. This is like the regular edition of the book. That, I think that comes out next next uh, month. So and then I'm working on a new anthology. <clears throat> I did an anthology a couple of years ago called Chosen People, Drew Friedman's Chosen People. So I'm doing a new one. Gilbert Gottfried will be on the cover. It's going to be large. This one's going to be large, not as large as uh, as uh, your your original art book or Dan's book, but maybe as large as my first book, Persons Living or Dead with a Shemp cover, you know, along those lines. It's going to be a large one, um, but I'm working on that now. It's going to be um, out. I think it's going to be out next year. That's the plan. Can you name so. a couple of names of the chosen people before we split? Well, this the, in the new book, it's going to be, uh, well, I have a list. <laughs> Got a short list here. I'm working on. Um, I saw a Klaus piece from his studio. Was that from the first Chosen People? Which one? Uh, Dan Klaus. Yeah, yeah, he was in the first one. Um, but this one, you know, well, it's going to have some Jewish comedians. Some uh, Willie Tyler and Lester. Um, 
is going to be in it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kelly Frias, you know, who did who painted my favorite Mad paperback cover, possibly my favorite piece of uh, artwork ever created for Mad, the cover for Son of Mad, you know, with the gorilla and the baby, the, the baby Alfred. And you don't even see Alfred's face. You just see his ass and the back of his head. <laughs> That's possibly my favorite, but I had to pay tribute to that. You know, I think it was for Kelly's 100th birthday or something. It was in Mad, but I reconfigured it. You know, I like uh, changed some things around. Um, but he's going to be in. So there's going to be comic artists in this new book, comedians, uh, authors, uh, you know, an, an assemblage, assemblage like that. It's, the book is going to be called Shtick Sh Figures. Get it? Um, that'll be out next year. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Drew, thanks so much for coming by. Uh, whenever you have anything new coming out, please please come by. Consider us, uh, put us on your your, your promo list. Uh, we'd love to talk comics and, and pop culture with you uh, again in the future. That'd be great, Ed, and great to talk to you, Jim. And uh, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, thanks, thank you Drew. so much.